So it was about a week ago that the Las Vegas shooting happened. Uh, 59 people were killed. Over 500 people were injured. And uh, our text today is very uh, somber. It's very uh, heavy. And so when I heard about the shooting uh, Monday morning, uh, I immediately prayed. And I I want us to pray together as a, a church family for Las Vegas and for the victims And so we're just going to start by by praying. Uh, Jesus, we ask that you'd bring comfort to that community of Las Vegas, to all the families affected by this tragedy. Um, God, in the midst of such great darkness, would you shine brightly and would you do that through your church, through your people? Uh, We pray that many would would recognize their need for you, uh, their desperation for you, and place their faith in you. Uh, We have no hope apart from you, Jesus. I pray that you'd reveal yourself to be the true and the living hope to them. Amen. So I debated uh, whether or not to use this question, and I'm going to use it, but uh, I'm going to use, I'm going to, I'm going to ask this question with the preface, uh, don't take it the wrong way, because <laughs> I debated using it, but just don't take it the wrong way. There's multiple wrong ways you could take it. But now that you know not to take it the wrong way, here's the question. If you were in Vegas, or if you had known in some way that something wasn't right, that people were in danger, uh, would you have done something? Would you have warned the authorities Would you have warned the people in the crowd, maybe Jason Aldean, so that he could announce it and warned more people? Uh, But you're like, of course, of course, man, I I would tell people. But what if they thought you were crazy? What if no one listened to you? The authority said, we've swept the premises. We don't see any imminent danger. Uh, There is no threat. But if your information was true, would you keep warning people? Today we're continuing our study of Jude. You can keep that question in your mind on the back burner as we we go through our passage of Jude today. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 10. So I'd encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of Jude. It's the second to last book. So find Revelation and just flip flip, uh, backwards until you hit Jude. It's very small, and that's why there's no chapters but only verses. So this this morning we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 10. And Jude writes, beginning in verse 5, he says, Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and slander celestial beings. But even the archangel, Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these men, they speak abusively 
against whatever they do not understand and what things they do understand by instinct like unreasoning animals these are the very things that destroy them so that's our text today <laughs> not a lot of hope uh it's, it's it's dark it's heavy it's judgment and we looked in the prior weeks that there are three big themes that hold the book of jude together and those are that the world is a dark, ungodly place, that we are to contend, and that God is going to keep us until the end. So if you had to guess, which of those big themes would this passage fit under? It's, it's number one. Yeah, of course. You're smart. You know that. But we cannot, so we're going to be kind of diving into that today, but we cannot understand this theme without its relation to the others. So we're going we're gonna to dive in to the world is an ungodly and dark place, but here's where we're going. We're going to conclude that we are called to contend for the faith and that God is going to keep us till the end. So in this passage, the main point is that Jude warns of the coming judgment of anyone who rejects the authority of Jesus by their actions and their words. Anyone who rejects authority by actions and words is warned of the coming judgment. And Jude does this by giving three stories of God's judgment. And the first story that we see is the story of the Exodus. He says, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, out of Egyptian slavery, but he later destroyed his people who didn't believe. So if, if you're not familiar with the Bible or if it's been a long time since you've heard the Exodus story, God's, God rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt. He used 10 plagues. He divided the Red Sea so that his people could pass through. And then he closed up the Red Sea on the Egyptian army that was pursuing them. But here's what Jude's talking about. When it came time to go into the land of promise, all of God's people that God rescued in a mighty way, they doubted God. Except for Caleb and Joshua. And God punished all of the people except for Caleb and Joshua by saying, you're going to have to die in this wilderness. You will not get to see the fulfillment of the promise that I made to you because you didn't trust me. You didn't believe. And the point of the story that Jude is making is don't think that because God rescued you from your sins, you can presume on his grace. Don't think that because you've heard of grace that it's a license for you to do whatever you want or because you've received God's grace, you can live however you want. Because remember, we looked at this last week in verse four, that's exactly what these people that Jude is warning about, that's exactly what they were doing. Jude says, certain men have slipped into the church who change the grace of God into a license for immorality. Basically, God is gracious, so I can do whatever I want. That's not true. And God is going to judge people who live and, and act that way. And the second story that Jude uses is angels leaving their proper dwelling. He said, the angels who didn't keep their positions of authority but abandoned their home, God has kept these angels in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day, on judgment day. So when I first read this, and probably most of you, at first glance, in our Western minds, this seems to be referring to angels that, uh, along with Satan, fell from heaven. But I believe, based on the context, if you look at the next verse where he says, in a similar way, and then he refers to Sodom and Gomorrah, 
I think Jude is referring to the sons of men in Genesis 6. And this is one of the more bizarre stories in the Bible. So let me kind of refresh you on this story. When I say bizarre, let me clarify. I don't mean far-fetched. I don't mean untrue. I mean truth is stranger than fiction. Okay? So Genesis 6 says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were very attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit is not going to abide with man forever. His days will be 120 years. So basically, angels came and had sexual intercourse with women and God was angry and he shortened the, the, the time that humans live. <laughs> and then the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. So based on this understanding of Genesis 6, the Nephilim were the, the, the offspring of angels. They, they were half angels, half human. <laughs> and they, and, and, uh, they were in, on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. It says they were the mighty men of old. So they did great acts of violence and destruction. But even if you understand this to be the angels who fell from heaven with Satan, either way, God is judging. Again, judgment is the, is the point. God judges the angels who acted inappropriately. They rejected God's authority and they received God's judgment. So this is story num- now, now story number three that Jude uses, Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah And the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. And Jude says, they serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So here's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Two angels go to see what's happening in these cities. God sends these angels to investigate what's what's happening. And Lot, a a righteous man, he welcomes them and he says, you guys got to stay in my home. And the angels say, no, we want to stay in the square. Lot says, no, you have to stay in my home. And sure enough, when, when the sun goes down, all of the men, the story says, all the men, young and old, came to Lot's door, knocking. Bring out the men who went into your house. We want to have sex with them. And Lot refused, and the crowd went crazy, started breaking in. So the angels struck the men with blindness. And they told Lot, get all of your family together and get out of here because God is about to judge this place. And they left. The angels kind of dragged them out. They, they left and God rained fire and sulfur from heaven, totally destroying the city and everything in it. So again, pretty heavy stuff, pretty heavy judgment. But the point is God judged the sexually immoral and the perverse and that, those are the words that Jude uses, sexual immorality. And I think from the story, it's pretty clear what that is. It's pursuing sex on your terms. I must have it on my terms. And then he also uses the word perversion, which if you read the NASB version, it says going after other flesh. Literally, it means going after other flesh. And so they were guilty on two accounts. They were guilty of wanting sex on their terms and not God's terms because God has set up sexuality to be enjoyed appropriately in marriage between one man and one woman, but they were also guilty of wanting sex with men. So they were, they were guilty of sexual immorality on two counts. And before we move on, because this is kind of a hot-button issue and I don't want to lose anyone, I, I, I really want to be clear on what the Bible teaches and what I believe and what we believe as a church about homosexuality. 
It is not a sin to have feelings of same-sex attraction. I'll say that again. Let's, we're starting with what's not a sin. It's not a sin to have feelings of same-sex attraction. I know many godly Christian men personally and that I've, I've read about them who are same-sex attracted, but their first and primary allegiance is to Christ and not to their attraction. So they do not identify as gay. They do not act on their attraction. Instead, they have a small group of friends that they share their struggle with and they choose to obey. Anybody else have struggles that you need a small group of friends to help you with? Anybody else have to choose to obey? Homosexuality is a sin when acted on, but the attraction is a temptation, and there's a big difference between being tempted and sinning. Homosexuality, though, when acted on, it is a sin, but it is not a greater sin. It's not a sin that's greater than lying, greater than pride, greater than any other sin. It is a sin, though, and the Bible is clear on that. But like other sins, it's not something that you should deal with alone. And just because if you've, if you've sinned in that way, it does not mean that you cannot be redeemed, that Jesus is not available to you. He is. And that he can change you. And my friends who are godly Christian men who struggle with the attraction and they choose to say no and they choose to fight, they'd love to have that desire changed. But they know that Jesus is using this to change them, and they want that even more. They want to be changed into Christ's likeness even more than to have this temptation removed. So again, I just want to be really clear. Homosexuality is a sin. Same-sex attraction is a temptation. And being tempted to sin is different than actually sinning. Jesus was tempted to sin, yet he did not sin. And so... These three judgment stories, in them we see a crescendo of punishment, a growing crescendo. From physical death in the story of the Exodus and those that did not believe and were put to death, to the angels who left their proper dwelling and rejected authority, God put them, he bound them in everlasting chains and darkness. And then with Sodom and Gomorrah, Jude says eternal fire. So you see this growing crescendo of judgment. We're going to get more into that next week when we talk about hell. Uh, Jude spends a lot of time talking about the ungodliness of the world, and we need to consider that. So now I want to connect all this judgment to the false teachers, because that's what Jude does next in verses 8 through 10. Jude focuses on the sin of the false teachers. And he says, in like manner, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, they reject authority, and they slander celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, didn't dare to bring a slanderous accusation, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. So Michael, highest, one of the highest ranking angels, said, I'm not going to rebuke you on my authority. I'm going I'm to let God rebuke you himself. And then, he's, and then Jude concludes, these men speak abusively against whatever they don't understand and what things they do understand by instinct, like unreasoning animals. These are the very things that destroy them. So here's the threefold problem with these dreamers 
the, these, these false teachers in the church, these men who have snuck in, they have the wrong authority. And whenever you have the wrong authority, it leads to wrong actions and wrong words because we all live under authority. We all live by authority. And so they rejected authority and they became their own authority. Does that sound familiar? We kind of live in a postmodern culture where people say, you get to choose whatever is right for you, whatever is best for you. And that's ultimately what's happening here is they're saying, we're our own authority. We trust ourselves. And in so doing, we're going to do whatever feels right. And we're going to say whatever we want. Even if we don't really understand what's going on, we're going to talk about it. <laughs> and we're going to say whatever we want. And in doing so, they, they blasphemed. They, they spoke wrongly. So that's, that's the threefold problem of authority, actions, and words. And those things all work together in, in their lives back then and in our lives today. So the application for us is when we come across people who have the wrong authority, and let's remember, we all had the wrong authority at one time. None of us were born as followers of King Jesus. We all had to repent, turn away from ourselves, and turn to Christ. But when we come across others who reject Christ, we are called to contend non-contentiously. Jude's word picture is to snatch some out of the fire, but to others show fear, hating even the clothing that's stained by the flesh. So Jude is saying, love the sinner, hate the sin. You're not responsible for their choices, but you are responsible for your choice. Are you going to pray for them? Are you going to love them? Are you going to offer them Christ? Are you going to put yourself out there or not? And I just think it's really helpful to remember that Jesus, who lived a perfect life, always did the right action, always said the right thing, he did that out of the authority of living under his heavenly Father. But the, the same one who lived a perfect life was a friend of sinners. He was a friend of homosexuals, of narcissists, of fools. But he was not a friend of homosexuality. He is not a friend of narcissism, and he is not a friend of foolishness. So in our efforts, in our lifelong endeavor of becoming like Jesus, growing into his character, we need to learn to be a friend of sinners without befriending sin. We need to contend for the faith. And so each week, as we look at Jude, I'm trying to give us an apologetic, which an apologetic is a reasonable defense for a belief. And so this week's apologetic is what I call the moral argument. If you have a friend who does not believe that uh, objective morals, that there is actually a right and a wrong exist, this is a really helpful tool. If you don't, you can just write down moral argument and you can YouTube it later when you do have someone in your life like that. But here's the moral argument. If God doesn't exist, then neither would objective moral values exist. But, point number two is, more objective moral values do exist. And if you reflect on your own personal moral experience, that's true. There's a difference between loving a baby or raping a baby. And I didn't hear anyone say this week, was it really wrong that the shooter in Las Vegas shot him? Like, like shot all those people? Was that really wrong? 
We all know that was wrong because objective moral values do exist. So I could, we could talk about this and validating these premises all day, but the conclusion is that because objective moral values do exist, therefore God exists. And what all I'm saying is there is a moral law that we all live by, and therefore there must be a moral lawgiver. That argument does not prove Christ. All it does is prove there is a God who is a moral lawgiver. But from there, you can continue the conversation and say, well, what is this moral lawgiver like? So, like I said, we could dissect and talk about that argument for hours, um, but we all live in light of how we see the world. We all live by a worldview. Every one of us lives by faith. And our faith in Christ is not opposed to reason. So don't be afraid to get into philosophy, get into science, because those things do not oppose faith. In fact, rightly understood, they reinforce it. And we need to remember our worldview because otherwise we get sucked into believing half-truths that are all around us. Like as long as you don't hurt anyone, you can believe whatever you'd like about life and the world around you. Well, no, you can't because your beliefs drive your actions. Morality is not determined by you or by culture. It is established by God. There is a God and he is not silent. So that is, that is our first application. And th- that's probably pretty complex, but that is contending for the faith. Here's, here's a much more simple application of how to contend for the faith. Be a disciple. Be a learner under Jesus. The, the word disciple is really old, and most people hear it, and they probably don't understand what it means, but I think the best modern-day picture is an apprentice. It's someone who studies under someone else, who gives their life to learn underneath a master teacher. And that is what we are called to be. There's a great misunderstanding, I believe, in American Christianity where you can be a Christian without being a disciple. Like, discipleship to Jesus is optional. And that's simply not true. That's simply not true when you look at the Bible. Discipleship simply means that Jesus is our authority. And where I'm getting, how this ties back into our, ver- our, our passage today is verse 10. Remember, it says, These men speak abusively against whatever they don't understand and what things they do understand. Those are the things that they're destroyed by. Basically, these people are their own authority, so they do whatever they want. In discipleship, you are not your own authority. Your authority is King Jesus. He's your master, and so God's grace isn't a license for you to do whatever you want. It's motivation to do exactly what God wants you to do. And we all have to remind ourselves to keep grace in front of us. So, I just think there's a great contrast between uh, being your own authority and what Jesus says in the Great Commission when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Therefore, go and make disciples. Therefore, do this, do these actions and, and say these words, right? Speak and live in this particular way because I'm your authority, Jesus said. So I want to conclude with two Dallas Willard quotes. And if you get nothing else out of the message, I'd encourage you to write down the gist of these quotes and just chew on it this week. Willard says, The cost of discipleship is great, 
When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. The cost of discipleship is everything, your whole life. But the cost of non-discipleship is far greater. Non-discipleship costs us the fullness of life that Christ came to bring. It costs us abiding peace. It costs us a life penetrated throughout by love. A faith that sees everything in light of God's overriding governance for good. It costs us hopefulness that stands firm in the midst of most discouraging circumstances. Non-discipleship to Jesus costs us the power to do what's right and to withstand the forces of evil. In short, it costs us exactly the fullness of life that Jesus came to bring. So that's the first Willard quote. The cost of discipleship is great. It'll cost you everything. But the cost of not committing to discipleship to Jesus, it's even greater. It'll cost you everything that Jesus came to bring. It'll cost you Jesus' life. The life of Christ that's available to you. The second quote, that it's, it's a shorter one. Willard says, the church is for discipleship. And discipleship is for the world. So, discipleship costs our whole life. It, it, it calls for all of us, but it's totally worth it. That's what the first quote says. And that is what God is offering to the world. No more, no less. Not offering eternal life insurance. Offering eternal life. And here's the thing. If you don't believe that that first that first quote, if you don't believe that kind of life is possible, then you're not going to offer that to the world. And don't misunderstand and think this is about perfection. It's not. It's about commitment to a certain direction. The way that we receive the gospel, the way that we receive Christ for the first time is we turn from ourselves. We repent. We say, God, I'm tired of living life my way. You are now my king, Jesus. You're my ultimate authority. So we repent and we believe. That's the proper response to the gospel. And that is the same way that we grow in the faith. It doesn't just happen to where you keep coming to church or you go to small group. And it's like, wow, I just grew. No, you have to keep choosing. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Each day I get up and my heart is wandering from God. I have to repent and believe. I'm justified. I'm safe in Jesus. I know the wrath of God has been paid for on the cross. But I have to keep choosing to repent and believe in order to be God's, in, in order to be Christ's disciple today and to live up to that calling. And in the end, when, when the great day, when judgment comes, we will stand blameless. And it's not because of how well we repented and believed. But it's because King Jesus has paid the penalty on our behalf. So if you don't follow Jesus today, or if you're not sure, do you want that? Do you want a life that is greater than anything that you can conjure up? If so, just tell him. And make that commitment, not to be perfect, but to go in his direction, to follow him. And if Jesus is your Lord, 
Here's the real challenge, I think. If Jesus is your Lord, you know that people are in grave danger. You know, and I'm not diminishing the tragedy at all in Vegas, at all, but there is a much worse fate. Do not fear him who kills the body, but fear him who after the body has been killed has authority to cast into hell. If Jesus is your Lord, there are people all around you who are facing that fate, and does it move you? It is possible that some can and will be snatched out of that fire, out of that judgment. And you can't choose for them. Don't put, it, don't put their eternal destination on yourself. But you should be contending for the faith. And I'm not saying you have to go stand on the street corner and warn people about the coming judgment. That, in fact, I'd say don't do that. I'd say pray. And if in your prayer your heart isn't moved... <laughs> then just tell God, my feelings are so out of touch <laughs> with what's real and wh- with what I believe is real. So, God, I choose to invest in contending for the faith so that my heart, my feelings, it'll eventually follow. Your heart follows your investment. So choose to invest in relationship with God. Choose to invest in relationship with God's people. Choose to invest in relationship with the world and the lostness around you. Contend for the faith. Offer them Christ. Because even though he calls for all that we have, he's worth it and we get so much more. So let's talk to God. We want to be diligent and serious about you being our authority and about your authority shaping our actions and our words. We don't want to presume on your grace. We want our lives to run on grace like a jet runs on jet fuel, like a car runs on gasoline. We were made to run on grace. And you offer an endless supply. And with regards to the the brokenness and the hurt and the darkness of the world around us, God, would we not run in like we are the hero? (laughs) Would we... Would we have an appropriate fear knowing that apart from grace, there go I, and that would be me, that I deserve nothing more than hell, death, and the grave. But your grace has changed me, and it is changing me, and it will change me. So help us to contend out of our relationship with you. You're our authority. We're not in this alone. All authority is yours, so that's why we go and make disciples. That's why we stand up for the faith. Help us to be your representatives until you come back. And when you come back, you will be seen and worshipped as the God who kept us from falling.